0: One of the reasons why I started this show was because I found listening to be an effective tool in softening hearts and minds, especially my own. I think this attribute is particularly important in politics. When philosophers and political scientists and other thinkers sat down to come up with their ideas on democracy, it's my understanding that debate and listening was kind of the whole point. I know in my own life i've changed my mind on a bunch of different topics so many times simply because i was able to hear a sit down conversation or long explanation on the matter as opposed to a headline or 60 second news clip today's guest i think really embodies this sort of listen first politicking and although reactionary politics makes more headlines i see that there are a lot of rising leaders such as our guest today for combating the status quo through empathy, open-mindedness, and listening. I'm a firm believer that these traits are not just reserved for the few, but instead they're usually mended and formed through intentionality and experiences that form these leaders into being an effective listener and in turn, bridge builder. Today's guest is Layla Zayden. Layla is the president and CEO of the Millennial Action Project. She's also a nationally recognized expert on youth engagement and has been featured in several outlets like Forbes, The Washington Post, New York Times, Teen Vogue, the list could really go on. And before joining MAP, Layla served as the Managing Director for Generation Progress, where she led integrated communications policy and advocacy efforts around solutions to the challenges that faces today's youth and spearheaded innovative new global youth engagement efforts. She also helped launch and manage the It's On Us campaign in partnership with the White House in 2014 and launched the Higher Ed No Debt campaign in 2013, which is a coalition of a dozen organizations that worked to make higher education accessible and affordable for all. She has a very impressive resume, but I'm excited for you to hear more about her work and how she got here, and how listening and speaking with people really informs all that she does. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Hello, Layla. Welcome to the podcast. How are you today?
1: I'm doing fantastic, Alexa. Thanks for having me.
0: Great. Well, I kind of gave them an intro of who you are and what you do. Um, But the reason why I wanted to have you on this podcast is obviously we're friends a little more than friends. Layla is my boss, just full disclosure. (laughs) Um, But she was one of the first people I wanted to have on this podcast when I was thinking about it. She's someone that I really look look up to in a lot of ways, so I'm excited to bring her into the listener's orbit so they can learn more about you and how you kind of got here. Uh, We just discussed your bio, and obviously you're working with young people right now. You work for a bipartisan organization, but... I truly think that, you know, you don't just get jobs and magically become a person, but it kind of takes a lifetime of experiences to get where you are. So I really want to discuss you today and how you got here and how you kind of developed these great skills that I think you bring to the table. So why don't we just start with sometimes the hardest question. Can you just tell us about you and who you are and maybe where you grew up? Uh, tell us about Layla.
1: Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, how how far back should we go? Should I start at the very beginning?
0: Yeah. Oh, let's start like where you grew up. Uh, maybe about your family dynamics. Let's start there.
1: Okay. We're going. We're going all the way back. Way way back. I'm, so a, I'm super young, so not so <laughs> is, not that not that far bit, back.
0: This
1: is gonna take a minute. Um, but the um, my family was actually born. Uh, see, now we're going even further back than you expected. We're starting a generation before. Both of my parents were born in Morocco. Um, and immigrated to, to New York, which is where I was born and and my sister was born and we grew up there, um, which made for a super interesting upbringing because most of my family, uh, other than my mom and my dad lived in another country and across an ocean and, um, was uh, a really sort of interesting childhood. Every summer, my mom was a teacher, so we would get to spend the entire summer during our summer breaks back in Casablanca, and um, had a foot very much in in both sort of the the sort of Arab cultural world and then like suburban New York uh, <laughs> world, and um, was a was a very fascinating. Um, uh, way to, to grow up that, you know, looking back actually, I think feels fascinating, but as I was living, it, it felt like normal. Like I, you know, I assume everybody just like goes off to Morocco every summer for, for two months. Um, but that idea of like, uh, having to be a little bit of a chameleon and adapting in all of the different spaces in, in which I was, I think that's, um, you know, something that I I learned pretty early on. I also went to an international school growing up. So, um, they speak French in Morocco. I went to a French school in New York. Um, so a lot of my closest friends were from all over the place, like all over Africa, Europe, um, any country where, where they speak French. And so it's been, um, uh, you know, cool to see too, where they have sort of spread their wings and landed now that we're all, uh, you know, kind of ups, I'll put ups in quotes because I don't know if we're actually ever fully grown-ups. Um, and and, yeah, and, and so, uh, that was sort of my childhood. I, I came here to DC, studied uh, international relations at Georgetown University. was super interested in public service and um, got to uh, do some policy work at a think tank early on in my career, helping to advance issues that young people care about. And then,, uh, yeah, landed here at at map. Um, I've been here about six years and, um, let's see what else about me, I guess, just to add to the like potluck of my life, I'm uh, getting married in a few months to a Jewish man. So sort of that Muslim Jewish connection will just make, uh, if we ever have kids, their identities, even more confusing than mine was growing up.
0: <laughs> That's going to be, I'm, I imagine it, is it a hard wedding to plan so far or are you handling the the challenges well?
1: Yeah, it's um, going to be a interesting fusion of cultures. So doing like picking and choosing little bits of, of each, I think our guests are going to be um, in for a surprise. Um, but our families have been super wonderful about just sort of letting us pick which parts of of the traditions we really want to highlight and incorporate. And so it'll be a, a blend of both.
0: I love that. That's that's so in beat with what Map does even, I'm just <laughs> blending everything together, yeah. even if it doesn't look as traditional. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess as as far as more experiences on your childhood or growing up, uh, you like many of the listeners were a young person during really pivotal moments like 9-11 or 2008, um, even like the rise of technology and social media. And we've seen that these events really shaped young people and now millennials, um, and it certainly translated into their politics. How do you think that that these events have shaped you as well?
1: Mm. Well, one of the things I said earlier of having to go to Morocco for a couple months every year, um, I just kind of took for granted or never really thought hard about what that meant about who I was and, um, my, my background and and heritage and, uh, nine 11, especially for me growing up in the, in the shadow of New York city, um, was a real, uh, I think identity crisis, you know, of course the country was experiencing this unfathomable tragedy and, and, um, is difficult for uh so many reasons about the breakdown of our of our institutions. I think for me in that moment, in addition to sort of the 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 things that I believed really kept us safe falling apart in that in that moment, and sort of the um loss of a sense of safety in that moment, um, it also caused a little bit of a, of an identity crisis in the wave of anti-Arab sentiment in the aftermath of that, even anti-French sentiment and having gone to a French school. Like weirdly, that was the thing that people uh, glommed onto a little bit more. It just, it, it made me feel really confused about why I had to be one or the other um, and not, you know, why I had to be either an American or or an Arab, like answering for, for sort of one body of, of, of people who'd done things. And so that, um, that for me really f- fractured a lot of the things that I had and up until then taken for, for granted, which, you know, I was in, uh, I was just about to enter high school when nine 11 happened. So it's kind of heavy stuff, uh, for a kid to have to process, uh, in that, in that way. Um, but I think it really did inform my worldview and, uh, you can look at, Sort of almost a bright line from that, that pivotal moment that shaped a lot of millennials' experiences uh, to where I am today, how that um how that day set me on the trajectory to want to build a more inclusive, stable set of institutions that make room for people of all different backgrounds. Um, and not just sort of make room for them but actually like function in service of them and and of their communities and of, of for their safety. Um so for me that you know that's probably probably the most important day of my life.
0: Yeah, no definitely. I love the just the connection that you've made um just how young people experienced 9/11 and how like our politics is a lot more inclusive now and I think a lot more empathetic in a lot of ways. Um, I guess fast forwarding to your work now, how how would you describe the work that, that you're doing now um, and how, you know, even that event brought you here?
1: Yeah. To your earlier question about these generational milestones of uh, national events, you know, there was... We didn't even talk about this really, but the, the financial crisis and, um, you know, pandemic, technological revolution, all of these things that people, of course, young people are in a monolith, but experience these massive societal shifts um, have created in in my opinion and in a lot of people's opinions, um, sort of a, a a generational resistance to being mm-hmm fit neatly into boxes i think we tend to reject that notion of being labeled so easily and you see it in lots of different ways you started to see it in in the you know early to mid 2000s where a huge wave of entrepreneurship was um being led really by young people and uh what millennial action project did in that moment in that time so is around 2013 was it looked at all of the ways in which young people were showing up outside of the traditional sort of paradigms that our institutions expected us to to do like you know the the pathways for what it is to what the what work looks like how you how you started um uh, a, a new business how you uh make your voice heard to do that in like new new ways sort of What MAP's mission was in that moment was what if we were able to capture that energy as it enters our institutions, as people start to run and win elected office who are of the millennial generation and have this really special quality to to transcend some of the binaries that have up until then really defined how we do policymaking. Um, What if MAP could create a space to channel that energy and scale it into the future so that we might help our institutions function uh, for a more modern society for for future generations. Um, And so that's really why we exist. That's what Millennial Action Project does. We um, are activating young elected officials in Congress, in in state legislatures to build those relationships with each other along a shared generational identity. And by helping them be effective lawmakers, by giving them sort of the tools, professional development, policy ideas, sort of media coverage, by giving them all of that and by saying you can do that together, you don't have to do it from your separate partisan corners, but actually if you uh, connect with each other in these ways, the, the, the whole can be greater than the sum of its parts. Um, we think that we can contribute to a healthier, more functional democracy. So, so no pressure on 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 you or on me, but we're just trying to build a, a better democracy for uh, the United States and for the world.
0: Yeah, it's not that hard. Just like a, a normal nine to five. <laughs> um, nothing to worry about there but yeah I know I really do love that and I know that we can even speak to just both of our work every day where when you kind of use that framing like we're all in this together we all have to like face the future together Um, you know people really start getting on board. Um, this kind of leads me to my next question, which is, you know, you're one of the few women who intentionally lead a bipartisan organization, especially women of color. And um, you do have a background working on young people's issues. We kind of tapped on that earlier, but why did you choose to go the bipartisan route? Um, you know, there are definitely other organizations that, you know, might better align with you know, personal beliefs or there's organizations that are more partisan that are working on youth issues. So why specifically did you choose to go with a bipartisan organization? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, it's a good question because it's very appealing to play for a team. Everybody wants to be part of something, right? Um, And you would think especially for for somebody like me, right, who didn't necessarily grow up feeling like 100% on like team Morocco or even, you know, team America where I, where I was born, um, that notion could be very intoxicating to feel like I'm a part of something of people who just all share the same beliefs and values, uh, that I believe and that I value. Um, but you know, I'll, I'll I'll be honest, the more that I, I worked within that paradigm of like only partisan, Uh, frameworks for how to create change. Um, The more that I saw the the tactics really were to sort of crush your opponent, humiliate them, destroy them at all costs, and not actually to listen and incorporate ideas in order to work together to advance the thing that you believe. Um, it, It really... It looked more and more to me like the way in which our sort of only partisan uh, frameworks for creating change were actually leading to then you know the other side just doing the same thing right back to me and making it much harder for my perspectives and point of views to to be heard. Um, and so you know you you follow that thread as as your issues that you care about start to not see much progress or or they do get progress and then they just get undone the next time the other party is in power and you start to pull the thread on that and wonder why is it so hard to create change to to fix things that it seems like people agree on um and then you start to see that there's this underlying problem there's this underlying rot within our system that uh incentivizes us to 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 focus more on winning than on solving problems. And so, so for me, working in a place that is really uplifting the idea of bipartisanship, of collaboration, um, it, it's almost a false choice between partisan and bipartisan, because I think you can still have your values and the things that you stand for, that you believe in, that you will fight for, and believe that it's fundamentally important to create an opportunity to hear and listen to other people's perspectives, lived experiences, and points of view. Um, because if you don't have that, then how can you expect them to give you that same respect? Um, and so the transition from, from working you know, just within a partisan organization to a more bipartisan one, for me, was an opening of opportunities and not sort of a shifting of, of focus. I think it gives us more opportunities to um, to advance ultimately the ideas and the future that that we think are, are important for all sorts of different issues.
0: Yeah. Um, no, I I totally agree. Um, I think that this idea of maybe meeting people um, who are differently or who are on the other side of the aisle is um kind of rising right now hopefully at least Mm -hmm. especially since we have you know such a split congress it's really close and so that kind of tool is really required right now I think if you were speaking to maybe the members in congress on how to to listen or be bridge builders what are some practical advice that you would give them
1: Ooh, okay. The fir- the very first thing is ask more questions. We see a lot of political theater, right? People who, especially at the congressional level, want to uh, make a statement or grandstand on the House floor so that they can cut it into an ad and send it to their donor base and raise a bunch of money. And nobody's actually saying anything and nobody's actually listening to anyone. And so the first piece of advice I would I would give is, you know ask really genuine questions and then listen when the other person answers because that is um the long lost art of having a conversation which i think has uh, unfortunately sort of escaped some of our um some of our lawmakers' uh, toolboxes of how they how they show up in the in the legislature um you know the the other thing is i would i would focus on um Building those relationships before there's a crisis. Um, we saw in 2020 the um, obviously COVID hit in a year where there was a really important election, and uh, elections officials across the country are really worried about how do we make sure people vote safely. I know this is a you know it could be a controversial issue for for some folks, but um, this idea of well, what if we expanded vote by mail? To uh, you know, places that don't typically have that ability, so that people can vote while keeping you know being socially distant. Um, that issue became so polarized so quickly, and it was fascinating to see members of MAPS Future Caucus in places like Wisconsin or in places like Ruby Red, Iowa film PSAs together, like a Democrat and a Republican got on camera and filmed a video just talking to their constituents and saying, hey, here's all your options for how you vote. You can show up on election day. You can vote early. You can vote by mail. Just being, uh, having that trust that their Democratic or Republican counterpart wasn't going to turn around and use that as like a gotcha and and um, sort of undermine them when really all they were doing was trying to, to share information. That only happened because those future caucus members um, had trust with one another ahead of time. And so, you know, I think that is the second piece of advice I, I would give is like really invest in building relationships early before there's a problem you have to respond to so that when there is sort of a flashback issue you have that in place and then once the problem occurs like make sure you're asking real questions and listening um to what people say
0: yeah I love that we should tell our CFC that every year <laughs> um, that's so good that's really great advice um, and then I guess just moving forward as far as young people um we've seen like through digital media and marketing and, and really everything in between that young people really trust young people and can even be persuaded by them. I know I've bought in way too many products because a person <laughs> on the Internet who looked like me, like, said that this would work. Um, and so how how do we see young people um, being these credible sources and convincing their communities beyond their age group? If you have an answer for that.
1: Yeah. So Alexa, I don't know if you even know this about me, but my very first job out of college, because I graduated into the Great Recession and couldn't find my dream job at a think tank doing youth policy uh, for a couple years. So in those two years, I worked at a digital media company called Living Social. And we sold like online coupons for experiences and restaurants. So like think Groupon or something like that. You spend $25, you get a $50 voucher to spend at that restaurant. And we had this um, sort of promotion where if you bought that $25 for 50 coupon, and then you convinced three of your friends to also buy it, then yours was free. And it was an incredible success, we saw so many people who bought one of those coupons, bring in an additional three people, like three paying customers. That's an additional $75 we wouldn't have gotten just on that word of mouth, just on the power of peer to peer recommendations. Um, And so like you, you really, I think hit on something, this idea of um, trusted messengers being at this point in time, the most powerful way that people are going to get their information. Um now who is a trusted messenger, right? I think and and that's sort of the the problem that we're in in this moment when miss and disinformation is is so rampant and um people might see something online and just take it to be true when in fact, it, it might not be. Um, I think we're seeing that some of the gaps in media literacy between young people and older people are, are demonstrating that because of the digital natives, uh, especially among Gen Z, having had to navigate this influx of like advertising and companies like mine trying to convince you to buy an extra $25 for 50 coupon, um, their BS meter, is super high, is like really high. And so, you know, I would hope that um, we continue to see those trends uh, compared to like a older generation who's used to seeing Walter Cronkite on the news. And so if he says something, it's true and they just trust it. Young people don't necessarily have that trust off the bat. They're a lot more skeptical. Um, And so I think we'll just see as, as, you know young people become sort of in those uh, those m- more leadership positions who are um, able to um, discern a little bit more easily what what's true and what's not. I think that'll um hopefully address part of part of the problem. Um and then I, you know, I also just think that um cultivating like small but powerful communities of of um, people is really important. That's why you see. Like micro influencers or YouTube folks <laughs> who have like a really niche um, sort of thing that they do, and they've built up like an authentic personality. And maybe it's not super huge, but let like that community really looks to them and, and trusts them. And so I think part of you know part of the work in in combating um, misinformation or getting like really good persuasive messages out is like thinking about who are those levers and who are those sort of influencers and not influencers in the like Beyonce term but like sort of micro influencers who really hold trust um among their peers
0: yeah no I love that I think that we definitely see that even now um like a a freshman member of congress is like the number nine substack right now um which is crazy but you know young people are really stepping up and I think providing the information and proving themselves as as trusted sources of information um Mm -hmm. when necessary but um, I guess. Um, what young people problem in our nation do you think are are under discussed or left to be on the table? I know it seems mm-hmm. like every issue is discussed and there's like <laughs> five million experts on it. Um, and you know there's always going to be a new problem, but um, I guess from like a a larger framework, are you seeing somewhere where maybe you'd want more movement?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I'll I'll mention two. Um, one, and we're hearing this from a lot of the young lawmakers in our network uh, that they're hearing from their constituents, is that housing is a huge issue that is only exploding in um, its negative impacts on on young people, both from just young people trying to buy a home and young people trying to rent somewhere affordable near their job where they want to live and um, places that uh, their cost of living is is Manageable for them, and I think that is a that is a crisis that we're seeing in states and cities across the country. That I I don't know that we've actually really underlined the the scope and scale of of like how big of a problem it is, Um, and it's it's overly impacting. I think young people who are really just trying to get get started. Um, the, the second that I would say is um, maybe a little bit more focused on the, the members themselves within our network, but uh, legislator pay. Um, so many young people are driven to work because of values. They want to work somewhere where they're, um, if they're in the for-profit sector where their employer really shares um, their values and, stand, you know, stands up, does good in the world. Um a lot of people are so motivated by values that they decide to go into public service. And the way we reward those those honorable people is that in places like New Hampshire, we pay them $1 a day and we ask them to work half the year on essentially no salary. Um, That is not a way to build a thriving, healthy democracy. Uh, We need to be incentivizing talent and rewarding people who have this altruistic drive within them to participate in building the civic culture in this country um, and not, you know, instead tell them what the only way that you can sort of feed your family and start a life is if you uh, go work at like Coca-Cola or Deloitte. Um, so, so I think, you know, understanding how we're compensating public's sector um, uh, public servants is incredibly critical to sort of supporting this next generation of, of leaders.
0: Yeah, no, I, I mean, I totally agree with with both those issues. And I think, particularly with legislator pay, and, um, you know, when you ask someone on the streets, should we pay politicians more, yeah. you know, your immediate answer is going to be like, No, but when you really look into it, it's kind of crazy how, you know, a lot of the people who are doing the groundwork for, for making our state a place we want to be in and live in are getting paid like absolutely nothing or they're having to work two jobs or, or something along those lines. And we really want good people who you know, are able to get sleep at night because they're not, you know, they have a normal job or work life balance, um, handling those really difficult tasks that, you know, especially happen in our states.
1: Yeah, and and totally. And you go one layer beyond that, too, because I
0: totally agree. If you went
1: and pulled people on the sidewalk, mm-hmm. should we pay our politicians more? I would be shocked to, to see how many people say yes. Um, probably zero or close to zero. And what that does instead is it makes it so that really the same kind of person Mm -hmm. is able to afford running for office. And it's either going to be somebody who grew up, you know, wealthy or has a wealthy spouse or is a retired person who has time and money on their hands. And that's not what we should be striving for in this quest to build a multi-ethnic multi-racial multi-religious democracy we really need to be thinking about what are the ways in which we support um, sort of lots of different points of view to to thrive and to lead and to to be heard
0: yeah no um uh Aristotle this is like so nerdy but Aristotle like in his book politics he one of his roles for a statesman was that they should be like financially well off so only the wealthy could serve and I remember that was just like a highly debated thing in my college class they were like what this is so sickening this is like undemocratic <laughs> like yeah it's happening right now this is like yeah. similar thinking that is still in our institutions today. Um, so definitely something to think about. Everyone, go research your local state legislature and and figure out their pay, and you know, call the state <laughs> house or something. I don't really know how that would work. Um, maybe you remember Congress? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but yeah. So as far as um, you know, you're working to build a more functional democracy. Are there any maybe goals that you're you're looking forward to accomplish? Um, that like young people can be excited to see.
1: Yeah, the, you know, notion of bridge building, which we've said a lot, can Mm -hmm. get conflated with words like civility or um, feel kind of fluffy Mm -hmm. and feel sort of like, oh, we're just, you know, we're just trying to have everybody get along all the time. Mm -hmm. That's actually not the goal. We want to see healthy conflict. We want to see productive conflict. We want to see people debate and persuade, and reach a decision that everyone trusts and everyone is able to move forward with. What we have now is uh, n- is not even close to that. And we see bright spots of uh, of folks starting from a place of of difference. And then instead of compromising to some like middle ground, being really additive and taking the best parts of each idea, that each of them have and building something new together. I think that's what we want. We're not looking for uh, like a watered down bipartisanship. We're looking for really creative and innovative solutions to problems that, frankly, I think lawmakers are not even talking about right now because they're focused on, um, you know, things that might raise the money or things that help uh, keep media attention on them. So, so, you know, I would say as, as a goal is, how do we actually build the muscle memory of the next generation of lawmakers to be getting to yes on something, whatever it is. And the more they can do that, the more they can become even take bigger risks, be more creative, build more innovative solutions. Um, That's something to get excited about is this future where we're seeing conflict. You know, I, I like seeing people uh, challenge each other and and offer sort of different perspectives, because that means that we're really kicking the tires on on the ideas that are going to impact millions and millions of people. We do that, you know, at the office for decisions that are going to impact like, you know, 15 of us, we should certainly be debating and thinking through ideas that are going to impact um, the whole country. And so let's, let's get our democracy, let's fill it with uh, leaders who are really good and skilled at, at having that kind of conflict, that kind of productive conflict, um, and, and ultimately become really responsive and and nimble to uh, the challenges that, that arise.
0: Yeah. Um, I really, yeah, I really like that. And I, I even think that it starts just an everyday conversation, like being willing to engage with people that you disagree with, or being as just an innovative as possible person when you're you know approaching new ideas or something along those lines so i really love that um well thank you so much you've been a great guest but we do have just a final question for you and i'm actually so excited to hear this because i always want to know what's on your mind um because the show is called let's listen who are some people that you think others should be listening to right now
1: oh okay so is listen in like the broadest sense possible so it's
0: so broad it could be anything okay it could be a a twitter follow
1: okay all right well i'm gonna i'm gonna go i'm gonna go in three different directions here if if i may
0: go for it Uh, yeah
1: so um i got lunch a few weeks ago with one of the lawmakers in our network uh in georgia rep jasmine clark and found found out that she also has a podcast, um, and her most recent one was talking about Gen Z, uh, voters and, and leadership. And so, um, I think, I think rep Clark is, is just, you know, a phenomenal leader, her and rep Steven Saines in Georgia are doing great work. Um, and so go, go give her a follow too, and wherever you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> um, the second person is uh, somebody named Amanda Ripley, who is a journalist who covers uh, conflict and bridge building and the journeys that different leaders and organizations go on in order to do this sort of impossible sounding thing of fixing our democracy. Um, she's got sort of a Substack and newsletters and books and is just phenomenally talented and could not recommend her highly enough. Um, Okay. And then the third person that I would suggest is I've been listening to a lot of Maggie Rogers lately. So if folks are (laughs) looking for a new addition to their Spotify playlist, um, Maggie Rogers has been on mine on, on repeat.
0: I love this. Those, those were all really great ones. I'm so excited to, to learn that Rev Clark has a podcast and to listen in um that I'm, I'm so excited I'll probably listen to this after that episode I also love Amanda Ripley she had one of my favorite books of the year last year um I think it was High Conflict
1: mm-hmm. so that's okay. right oh well maybe she'll be the next guest
0: maybe Amanda you're welcome to be on the show um yes well thank you so much for being on today Layla I really appreciate it
1: thanks so much Alexa this was fun